Let's open our Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 22. As Gino said, we want to look at this chapter tonight. All of it, Lord willing. We're calling the study, There Will Be Blood. We'll see why. City nicknames, usually fun and sometimes informative. Some of them you know quite well. I'll give you the city and just, this is your opportunity to shout out the nickname. Reno. Biggest little city in the world. New York City. All right. What, uh, what else could go besides the Big Apple? Cities. Gotham City. Big Apple. Las Vegas. New Orleans. Big Easy. Only you said it in a way that I could understand. <laughs> Detroit. Motor City or Motown, right? Okay. Chicago. Windy City. I, I'll, I'll accept Windy City for 500. Now, here are a few you ought to know. Clovis. Gateway to the Sierra. There's no such thing as the Sierras. I had to learn that the hard way. I was totally embarrassed one day trying to correct Gillette Doggett when he was still the pastor of Calvary Chapel of the Sierra. I went into a whole thing about well, what happened to the Sierras. And stuff. But anyway, the Sierra Mount, it's the Sierra Mountain Range. There's no plural for it in Spanish. So don't get stuck with that. Or win bets. I don't know. Reedley. Yes, the world's fruit basket. Who said that? Was that you, Rob? Wow. You should get this one. The next two you ought to get. Selma, Raisin Capital, and Gilroy. All right. All right, here are a few California cities whose nicknames may not be so familiar. Corona. I used to work in Corona. I knew that that was called the Circle City because they have a big main drag that is a huge circle that goes through town. Huntington Beach. Surf City, that's right. Indio. <laughs> Rob's got all the fruit and vegetable cities memorized. This one you should get, Pasadena. You just can't say roses. The City of Roses. And then Oakdale. Oakdale is the cowboy capital of the world. Riverdale doesn't have a nickname, last I checked. Not, a, not, a, not an official one. Oh, gosh. Sixth century Jerusalem had earned a nickname. If you're wondering why we had that exercise in futility. It was given to her by God. You see it in verse 2 of our chapter. It's called the bloody city. Blood or bloody is mentioned in verses 2, 3, 4, 6, 9, 12, and 13. Chapter 22 is an, indi- is an indictment against and a description of the violence and the vileness of Jerusalem. We need to keep it in the context of God's impending judgment upon His covenant people for violating the Mosaic law 
but along the way we could also draw some timeless moral lessons for ourselves. And so let's get into it. Verse 1, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Now, son of man, will you judge? Will you judge the bloody city? Yes, show her all her abominations. Then say, Thus says the Lord God, The city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come, and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You've become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourself with the idols which you have made. You have caused your days to draw near. You have come near to the end of your years. Therefore, I have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries. Those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult. The prophet Nahum had referred to the godless city of Nineveh, capital of Assyria, as a bloody city. Ezekiel was instructed to refer to Jerusalem by the same denigrating nickname. I was thinking about nicknames and I I was uh, reveling back to the time before I met Jesus and thinking about any one of the several nicknames that I went by or could have gone by back then, like doper or drunkard or liar or profane person or thief. And many of you could have gone by some pretty awful nicknames in your time. Uh, Just think of any of the list of sins that characterize the fallen condition of human uh, the human race and, and where you were at before you met Jesus. And uh, that's how you would have been identified. Then I got saved. I was a new creature in Jesus Christ. And I received really new nicknames. I was a Christian. I was a believer. I was born again. How sad it is for someone delivered so powerfully, so wonderfully, so miraculously, to then return to those same works of the flesh and to regain those old nicknames. Uh, don't do it. Think about it and, and be excited about what you've been delivered from. Egypt always seems so nice, doesn't it? When the children of Israel came out of Egypt and all they had was un, you know, what God was providing for them in abundance and they said, you know, I don't know about this desert stuff. In Egypt we had leeks, onion, garlic. And, uh, you know, Egypt seemed so delightful to them from a culinary point of view. I guess they'd forgotten that they were making bricks, that the taskmaster was whipping them, that they were an enslaved people. And that's what happens to us as Christians sometimes. It, you know, there's a, a tendency sometimes to look back on our old life. I mean, we, you know, we don't immediately want to go back to that, but you remember parts of it as being better than they really were at the time. Because you're not living them right now. You know, some of the, you know, the Bible says sin is pleasurable for a season. Of course it is, otherwise no one would do it. And so if you think about it too much, you have a tendency to remember some things that were seemingly pleasurable. You don't remember all of the context. You don't uh, understand what was happening there. Uh, You know, and, and we just need to be careful that we don't get drawn back into those things. That we don't grow weary in our well doing and... Uh, all of that. We don't need those nicknames. God, the Lord went through a lot of uh, effort uh, on our part, dying on the cross, rising from the dead, so that we could be called the sons of God. And uh, let's, let's earn and deserve those nicknames. 
Now, in verse 5, we read that the Israelites would be mocked. We sometimes forget that the nation of Israel was to be evangelistic. They were to expose the other nations and peoples of the world to the wonder of God's love. Instead of affecting the world, they became affected by it, infected by it. The watching world could do nothing but hold them in derision and mock them. We're, we're supposed to make a difference out there. We are salt and light. Uh, and, you know, you are making a difference. You may not feel it all the time. People may not be running up to you and asking you what must they do to be saved, but they will from time to time. Uh, everyone goes through a crisis and just be a person of integrity. Let everybody know that you're a Christian. And the time will come when a friend or a co-worker or a neighbor will be led to you and, and they'll want to know uh, what the hope that you have is. And then just be ready to talk to them about Jesus. <clears throat> Verse 6, look, the princes of Israel, each one has used his power to shed blood in you. In you they have made light of father and mother. In your midst they have oppressed the stranger. In you they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. In you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. In you are those who eat on the mountains. In your, in your midst they commit lewdness. In you men uncover their father's nakedness. In you they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you they take bribes to shed blood. You take usury and increase. You have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. Now, here is a, a, you know, an indictment against the leaders, and they are being held accountable for the sins taking place in Jerusalem. The leaders had deliberately violated specific commands of the Mosaic law. They had misused their positions to have people executed unjustly. They treated their own parents with contempt, ignoring the rightful respect and honor due to them. In other words, we would say today they committed elder abuse, which is on the rise. Strangers were oppressed and they did nothing about it. They took advantage of those without any to defend themselves, the orphans and the widows. They despised the holy things of God and His Sabbaths. Their government encouraged murder based on slanderous accusations. They participated in pagan religious rituals. rituals that's what the talk about being eating on the mountains was. They were feasting uh, in pagan religious rituals on the mountaintops. They engaged in all manner of sexual perversion, uh, a list of which is given here. And they employed bribery and exorbitant taxes and interest rates. And those are just examples it's not meant to be an exclusive list. It was an example of what the leaders were practicing, not just allowing, they were deliberately practicing these things themselves. And then at the end, we see that the real problem, the root issue, we would say, God says, they have forgotten me. Having forgotten God, they went after all of these things. Now, it wasn't a lapse of remembrance. It wasn't that they had forgotten God as if they didn't know who he was. It was as if they were saying to God, hey, forget you. We don't need you. You know, we've got... I, I don't know what you're thinking at that point if you're a, a leader in Israel. I guess you're just, you're just gone, you know. You, you, some people, they just, they just get out there and you just can't figure out their thing. People ask me all the time, what do you think this person was thinking or 
why do you think they did what they did? Now, I don't know. You know, if people aren't acting biblically or according to, you know, God's standards and covenants, they're capable of all kinds of weird stuff. I don't know that there even has to be a reason for it. That's a psychoanalytic concept that we've come up with that everything has a cause and effect. The cause is sin. The effect is just weirdness. All kinds of weirdness. So it's not, you know, that you weren't held enough as a baby or, you know, you'd had a poor father figure or anything like that. Those things affect you, sure, but you're just a sinner and you do all kinds of weird stuff. There's, there's no, and that's what troubles us so often is because we're, we, we want to know the reason for something we, because we, we want to believe that, that something could have been done about it. And, well, something has been done about it. Jesus died so that a person could be saved. But we want to think that there's something else that society could have done or, you know, if we could have only understood this back then. And, and you know, sometimes people just do weird stuff and there's, there's no accounting for it. Sin leads you into a lot of strange ways. Leadership in God's economy is always servanthood. It doesn't give you a kind of spiritual diplomatic immunity to violate God's precepts and principles. If anything, these guys ought to have kept the law better than those they were called upon to serve. They should have had a healthy fear of the law. We know this on an intuitive level. Whenever we see somebody who is in a position of, of leadership, whether it's the church or government, and then they end up being hypocrites, we, we, we expect that they were doing the things that they're telling us to do. I, do, I, I don't follow politics that much, but I know a lot of you do, and I know you'll understand this example. I, I understood that this guy, Tim Geithner, who's the, what is he, is the treasury guy, didn't pay taxes for a long time. And so it's like, okay, that was a problem to, with people. They say, well, how can you be the head of the treasury department if you're not paying your taxes? And, and there's kind of an intuitive understanding. And, uh, you know, so whether it's the world or whether it's the church, there's an expectation that a, if a person is saying something or holding a position, that they're also living up to that. Yeah, not in a perfect sense. Nobody is perfect. Uh, but there is that expectation. And these guys certainly should have been doing that. Leadership has its privileges. In the Christian scheme of things, the privilege is to share in the sufferings of Jesus and to stoop to serve others. Uh, and so, as I've told you many times over the years, a lot of the stuff that you learn and appreciate out in the world has to be left at the door when you come into the church because leadership in the church is always greater servanthood. It's always bowing lower. It's always washing more feet, not less feet. Out in the world, sure, if you can climb the ladder and get to the point where you're not doing any work because you're a short-timer and your retirement is coming, hey, have at it. I mean, that's the way of the world. Everybody expects that, but not in the church. Not in the church of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the example. And right up until him serving us on the cross, he was also serving the disciples by sharing the meal with them and washing their feet and teaching them and praying for them. Just read through John uh, you know, 14 through 17, one day, just thinking about how others-oriented Jesus was during that whole time. Uh, you know, there, there are some moments when he is talking just to the Father, him and the Father, but he's talking about us. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's an amazing thing. And so we need to always rethink that and kind of put on a, a different attitude when we're talking about serving in the church. Verse 13, 
Behold, therefore, I beat my fist at the dishonest profit which you have made and at the bloodshed which has been in your midst. Can your heart endure? Can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, disperse you throughout the countries, and remove your filthiness completely from you. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. Then you shall know I am the Lord. Although the Jews would come back for a time after the Babylonian captivity from the time of Ezekiel forward, it's pretty accurate to say that they have been dispersed throughout the countries of the world. It was for their own good to discipline them. God's techniques may seem harsh. His discipline was destruction, captivity, dispersion. Was he being unduly harsh? Well, let's put it into perspective. Think of yourself raising your children. Isn't it hard at times to discover the appropriate discipline? I mean, there's the, you know, everybody knows what they ought to do. There's the, you know, the stern saying of no. No. And then you use the full name. Jean Joseph Pensiero, no. You know, and that... And then there's, you know, there's the spanking, biblically appropriate spanking with an implement on the buttocks. There's a little footnote there so I don't get arrested. And, and then there are things like time out. I mean, there's some classic disciplines. But every parent who's been through this knows that sometimes, man, that it's just a challenge to figure out exactly how to discipline for a, a particular situation, especially as the kids get older. You should be done spanking them after, you know, and getting it. You know, there's some, I've talked to people before, I said, well, you know, spanking, you keep, if they're 16 and they still need a spanking, if they're 16 and they still need a spanking, you need a spanking. Because you didn't, you didn't do your job, uh, you know, and, uh, and, and really I don't, I, don't, I don't think you want to be doing that. So, you know, it gets, gets tough to come up with these age-appropriate disciplines and to really strategize. Um, still, as parents, we put our best effort into properly disciplining our children for the best result for them. And so we need to trust that God knew the best discipline for Israel, that this was the thing that was going to finally, spanning centuries, bring them back into their land in a mood to be uh, taken through the great tribulation so that the remnant would receive Jesus Christ at His second coming. Uh, and from, from a historical standpoint, it seems extremely harsh. Uh, but it's parental discipline, God says, for a good end. And we need to believe that God disciplines us the same way in the sense of looking out for what's best for us. When we're in times of discipline, let's see them as God's severe mercies designed to draw us either closer to or back to Him uh, because He is a good and loving parent. Now, it's been a while since we had an illustration, so here comes one, verse 17. The word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me. They are all bronze, tin, iron, and lead in the midst of a furnace. They have become dross from silver. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem, as men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into the midst of a furnace to blow fire on it, to melt it, 
So I will gather you in my anger and in my fury and I will leave you there and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath and you shall be melted in its midst. As silver is melted in the midst of a furnace, so shall you be melted in its midst. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury on you. Dross, as you know, is the waste product taken off molten metal uh, during smelting. God was going to use Babylon, its invading armies, as his smelter, and the Jews would be left wasted. I was thinking about this and realizing that there's lots of fire in the future for the human race. The great tribulation that is coming upon the world is described as a fiery judgment from heaven. And if you were with us for any of our studies in the Revelation, you know that fire is actually prominent. While the great tribulation is unfolding on the earth, resurrected and raptured believers from the church age will have their works tried by fire. I'm looking forward to that. After Jesus returns and after the thousand-year kingdom, all the non-believers from all time will face the great, uh, great, the great white throne, the great white throne judgment, resulting in being cast alive for eternity in the lake of fire. Then the heavens will be dissolved as by fire and God will create new heavens and a new earth for believers to enjoy forever. <clears throat> you know, I think, I think it's a judgment on me for making fun of people who enunciate their words very carefully. And now I'm realizing that as you get older, you have to do that. Otherwise, you're just everything runs together like that. <laughs> so quit making fun of me or else you'll end up like me. and You don't believe me. It's not fun. Anyway, in the meantime, we face fiery twiles uh, <laughs> that refine us. In our case, God sees us as gold, not as dross, and we are gold needing the dross removed. Some of us more drossy than others, uh, but uh, all of us, God, uh, who has begun a good work, seeing it through to the end. And uh, there, there's no, not, no way around it. Sometimes you're just going to have to go through the fire. The Jews were a people identified with their land and their city. God would treat the land as an extension of them. It too would undergo a kind of judgment. Verse 23, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, say to her, You're a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. This would seem to indicate a drought upon the land, especially during the years of Babylonian captivity. Uh, and, uh, you know, I couldn't really get any statistics together, and I want to be careful saying this, but I think it's generally understood that it's just been really recently in recent history that the land of Israel has become really productive uh, and, and is really starting to bring forth a tremendous amount of agriculture and fruit and that kind of a thing. And so, again, um, without being totally specific here, uh, we can see that, you know, the Lord not just the Babylonian captivity, but even afterwards, the land itself has been suffering until recently. And it all plays into the fact that we really are living in the last days of human history as written in the Bible. Uh, things are really unfolding the way God said they would. Now, God had laid a lot of blame on the leaders, and rightfully so, but in the remaining verses of the chapter, He spreads it out to everyone because even though you have bad leadership, it's not an excuse for you to sin. Verse 25, The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. 
they have made many widows in her midst. Now, the false prophets demanded payment for the word of God. It was okay to be supported in the ministry of a prophet, and the priests in the Old Testament were cared for by offerings. They were taken care of. In the New Testament, Paul talks about it's okay to uh, be uh, recompensed for the work of the ministry. Nothing wrong with that. But this is something different. These guys are withholding the word until sufficient money was received. This isn't just about them being supported as ministers of the word of God. This is about them selling prophecies. And, you know, it's sort of like the modern day palm reader or, you know, psychic or something where, uh, hey, you know, the first minute is free. But then if you like what you're hearing, you know, ante up and I'll tell you some more. And so these prophets were prophesying for profit. They were prophets for profit. Ha, ha, ha. Anyway, and, and they were withholding what they said was the Word of God, which was, wasn't the Word of God anyway, and it was just all a big con to them. Uh, and the prophecies were false. But because of the false prophecies, one of the things that was happening here is many widows were in their midst. That's because sometimes they would prophesy big things like whether or not Israel should go to war. And then, you know, of course, everybody wants to think... Um, it reminds me of the beginning of Gone with the Wind. Remember it? Gone with the Wind and all the Confederates, they think we're going to win this thing in ten minutes, you know. And then... I, I, the last time I checked, the Confederates law, right? They, a lot of Southern people won't admit that, but uh, historically, the Confederacy laws. And so there's all that zeal. And so, yeah, yeah, you know. And so, you know, the prophet doesn't want to come out and say, well, no, nah, you know, you better not go to war because we're liable to get wiped. Oh, yeah, go, go to war, you know. And, and of course, the young men and the older men, the, the soldiers would get wiped out uh, and leave many widows because of their false prophecies. False prophecy and false teaching always leads to death one way or the other. It can still lead to real physical death, as in the case of too many cult groups that end up committing mass suicide. Uh, I remember one of my uh, experiences in uh, a mental institution down... I wasn't a patient, I was a visitor. (laughs) Down in San Bernardino, um, I was down visiting a guy... It's a really long story. But I was visiting one guy, and then this other lady uh, uh, wanted to know if I could uh, talk with her. I don't know if ever, many of you have been in mental institutions, but they're not as secure as you might think. Uh, and uh, In fact, they're very insecure. So you're, you're in there with these mental patients, uh, and this lady wanted to know if I would talk with her, and I said, sure. And So um, she kept wanting me to go in her room and shut the door, and I I just felt uncomfortable with that. And so anyway, I finally got to talk to her. Anyway, it's a long story, but she, in a nutshell, she had been going to a a health and wealth church. This is kind of at the beginning of the health and wealth gospel where if you have enough faith, God will give you whatever you ask for and all that. And so she was having some problems uh, financially, and she was going to this church, and they were telling her that all she had to do was claim God's promises, and He would provide for her, and just have enough faith. and And so she she was buying into it and trying to do that. Well, and eventually she lost her house and got kicked out on the street because she, you know she was claiming her rent money, but it just didn't come. and And uh, so she went back to the church, 
And she was obviously a little bit unstable anyway, but she went back to the church and rather than admit that their doctrine was wrong and false, they told her it was her fault that she just didn't have enough faith and <clears throat> that God wasn't working in her life and all of that. And so she promptly tried to kill herself um, because she figured, well, you know, if I've given this thing a try and if God doesn't love me, and if he's not going to help me, then what good is it to be alive? And, and so in her case, false doctrine almost led you know, to the end of her physical life. Uh, and so you know, it, it's always kind of annoys me when people get up and they say, oh, you know, you're too harsh on these people. You know, just, just preach Jesus. You know, and these you know, other people will you know, find the truth and don't speak out against the cults and the false teachers because, you know, we're all one big happy family and stuff. And, you know, uh, people are being led to uh, suicide, quite honestly. And if it's not physical suicide, there's a spiritual side to it where people are, are bringing death and destruction into their lives because of these false doctrines, these false prophecies, these winds of doctrine. It's a very serious issue. Uh, not one to be trifled with, and we don't criticize lightly. Uh, have we ever made mistakes? Have I ever said things that I wish I hadn't said? Yes. Uh, I had to think about it, but no, I, I have. Uh, but when, whenever we decide, and by we I mean the pulpit here, whenever we decide to you know, say something about a group or an individual or something, it, it's because it's serious. It's because it's very important. Because people's lives are being ruined by those doctrines, those winds of doctrines and all. So <clears throat> we don't take it lightly. Verse 26, her priests have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They've not distinguished between the holy and the unholy, nor have they made known the difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hidden their eyes from my Sabbath so that I am profaned among them. The priests did not maintain separation from the world they brought the world with its ideas and ideals and practices into the temple. Now, we always want to remain flexible and we want to be contemporary. I'll just say that. I admit it can be hard to draw the line. Let me give you an example, and I hope this uh, won't offend anybody. A uh, lot of churches today are, uh, it seems like it, it's become really popular right now to introduce purely secular music into the worship of the church. The songs aren't necessarily evil in and of themselves, but they weren't written by believers for the Lord. Uh, there's never been an intention with the particular song to bring glory to the Lord. Someone I follow on Facebook was all excited because his church introduced a Black Eyed Peas song into their worship service. And the truth is, it's mostly done, I believe, for shock value uh, so that people can go, oh, wow, God is so cool. He likes the black-eyed peas, which I, I don't think he does necessarily. But, uh, and, and, you know, that's, I'd say, I'd say no to that. Luckily, none of our worship people are even thinking about that. Are you? But no, you're not. They're not. Because they are here, we're here to worship the Lord with songs that bring glory to the Lord. Now, that's different than people who come through and they say, well, only the hymns, you know. If you're singing worship choruses, it's the devil. But, uh, you know, there's a difference between talking about styles of music, instrumentation, and, and all of that, 
and, and purely, the purely secular versus the spiritual. Those are two very different discussions. Uh, and so, you know, I don't mind having the, the argument with people about styles of music. Um, th- th- nothing bothers me more than rap music. Not because I'm old-fashioned, I just I can't stand it. But God uses it. I've seen God use it. He continues to use it. He will continue to use it, despite my prayers to the contrary. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm, I'm open to it, you know, in terms of how God could use it in, in certain, you know, environments and situations. That's fine. That's different than bringing in, uh, you know, that's, that's different than singing Stairway to Heaven on a Sunday morning because the word heaven is in there. And no one knows what the lyrics mean anyway. So maybe they're Christian lyrics or, you know, that kind of a thing. Who knows? Uh, and, and so uh, th- there's two very different things going on. I've also reported before, not to just pick on worship, uh, but a handful of popular preachers, very popular preachers, have started inserting cuss words and expletives undeleted in their sermons. And they think it's, it's cutting edge and contemporary. And people are like, Wow, that's what? If you think it's cool, you're crazy. You know, I, I, when this was going on a few months ago, uh, more prominently, Greg Laurie uh, on his blog wrote, he says, he goes, hey, I think we're pretty contemporary. I think we're pretty cutting edge. And I don't feel any need to cuss or to bring derogatory language into the message of the Word of God. Uh, and I thought, okay, well, that's cool. You know, I'm, I'm with that. Uh, And so we just need to be careful uh, about these things. Separation needs to be prayerfully maintained. It's not always easy. And, and, you know, because, again, we do want to be flexible and contemporary. uh, But nevertheless, we need to maintain a real separation from the world. Verse 27, her princes in her midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood, to destroy people and to get dishonest gain. The princes are the leaders we already discussed earlier. They're included here because God just wants to list everyone. We see in verse 28, they were in cahoots with the false prophets. It says, her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar, seeing false visions and divining lies for them, saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. Plastered them with untempered mortar means they gave the princes a false spiritual credibility, propping them up before the people. They weren't being independent. They weren't speaking God's truth. They weren't holding them accountable. How often do we read in the Old Testament that some prophet just walks out of nowhere and rebukes the king, rebukes the leader? And not these guys. These guys were all in with one another because, you know, to, to get ungodly gain. Verse 29, the people of the land have used oppression, committed robbery, robbery mistreated the poor and needy. They wrongfully oppressed the stranger. Like leader, like follower, the peeps followed the spiritual example of the priests and the social example of the princes, all of whom were bolstered by the prophets. Verse 30, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Now, if you've been a Christian any length of time, you've heard someone either in a prayer or in a sermon talk about standing in the gap. The idea portrayed is to plug the spiritual void and thus deliver those you are ministering to. I think that's a fine illustration, nothing wrong with it. However, in the case of 6th century Israel, there wasn't anybody to do that. So what about Jeremiah? Well, Jeremiah was in custody uh, back in Jerusalem. What about Ezekiel? Well, he was in captivity in Babylon. 
What about someone in the remnant God would spare? Well, I'd say that they realized that their fellow Jews, those who were not part of the remnant, were not going to respond to the message of repentance. God had told them as much. You see, standing in the gap wasn't just taking upon yourself the pressure that was created by the breach. It was pointing out the breach, calling those responsible for it to repair it. In this case, through repentance. And that was just not going to happen. And so verse 31, Therefore I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath. I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord. The Lord speaks of future actions as already having been fulfilled. God can talk like that with certainty about the future. He can say, I've done that, when it hasn't happened yet because He knows He's going to do it. So many people, like so many people, sometimes myself included, uh, I'm worried about the future. I may not know the details of the immediate future, of my future, uh, and, and that's what causes me the worry. We live in a worrisome time, don't we? Uh, it's, it can easily freak you out. And, 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 you know, how, how bad are things going to get? What's really going to happen? But I do know that everything that God has promised me and everything He said He'll do are already fulfilled as far as He is concerned. And so though things may get difficult, there's no promise that they won't. In the world we will have tribulation. We are, can be of good cheer because the Lord has overcome the world. Amen? Amen.